Today's episode of Car Meet is brought to you by Car Gurus, the top destination for buying and selling cars. With Car Gurus, you're empowered to find great deals with ease. Car Gurus' unique deal rating system, ranging from great to overpriced, ensures transparency when you're shopping for your next ride. Plus, you get essential details like a car's history and time on the lot, making your decision a well-informed one. Selling? Car Guru simplifies that too, offering a wide audience and fair value insights. Visit our affiliate link in the podcast description today. The smarter, more transparent way to handle your car needs. Car Gurus, where your car, your deal comes to life. Now, on to the show. I saw that you um, are into, you're big dog guy but are you like into big dogs or are you just like a big dog person well i love all dogs right but but primarily i've always liked large breed dogs uh okay because i don't have to worry about uh that you know little little bones breaking so Mm -hmm. uh, and other things and i don't know i just enjoy big dogs because you know they love swimming they're big they're they're fun and uh you know small dogs have their place but i you know what what was it uh any dog under, according to Ron Swanson, any dog under 50 pounds is a cat and cats aren't pets. So, <laughs> so, well, uh, uh, you know, anyway. I'm Gabe Carey. I'm one of your hosts. Uh, I'm the founder of Acceleramota. This is Jarek here. Uh, he's your other host. He's our editor in chief. Hello. And then we're here with Ross Lippman, uh, formerly of Stellantis, and he's going to get into a little bit about uh, his past, his experiences, and where where things are at now. And a little about my my background. So I spent the last three and a bit years, about three and a quarter years, with Stellantis, the artist formerly known as Fiat Chrysler, the artist formerly known as Chrysler Corporation, uh, mm-hmm. and the other artist formerly known as Daimler Chrysler. Um, so I was in charge world's of world's most stable car company. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If it, it, it is like, uh, she's like a street walker, right? Any street corner, anytime, uh, who's the highest bidder anyway? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, um, I'm not there anymore, so I can say this. But at any rate, I was in charge of in-market product for Alfa Romeo and Fiat North America. Uh, the Fiat part I tend to leave out because I try to pretend I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, yeah, that's not your fault. Uh, but I'll get into Fiat later. Um, <laughs> Alpha, Alpha was my primary responsibility. It's why I was hired at FCA. So initially, I was in charge of Julia uh, product planning and product management um, for the North American market. So uh, I were liaised with my Mexican and, and, and Canadian counterparts. But ultimately, it went through me to the global team in Italy. <clears throat> then I took over Stelvio and then ultimately Tonale. Right. So I, I, I helmed Tonale. For the, about the 20 months or so leading up to its uh, its release into the market in May of this year, uh, so that was that it was kind of my my life. Uh, I spent two years, unfortunately, being one of those MBA assholes. Uh, so I went to Boston College for that, and then I spent years before that. I spent about five years in go-to-market strategy and kind of brand consulting with Nielsen uh, before Nielsen sold off that part of the business in 2017. I uh, spent a year in CPG, kind of consumer package goods. Don't don't recommend that. Very boring um, mm, to me. Anyway. Sounds like it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, Just the name. They and, need to and, spice that up a little. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the British call it fast moving consumer goods. So I don't really, that doesn't really help. Um, but, 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 uh, and then oh, so I'm here, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. so I left the beginning of August, you know, kind of writing was on the wall um, about just, just, 
I didn't like the way the company, the direction things were heading. Um, I didn't think that uh, they were taking the necessary steps, I would say, to secure the brand's future, not just from an alpha perspective, but knowing how to successfully negotiate North America is very hard because as you guys know, uh, you know, it really was, you know, everybody says it was a merger, right? It was really PSA group acquired FCA. Um, and so PSA has not sold a car in the United States in 35 years. So it is a, you know, 1990 was the last, or 91 was like the last time a, a, a Peugeot of any kind was sold in the United States. So mm -hmm. I think they're still coming to terms with and still trying to negotiate how to best handle NAFTA, not understand, you know, and, and, and I think that there are still some challenges with understanding that consumer value is really, really high here. Americans demand value. Uh, not mm -hmm. just, you know, because the price is just so exorbitant. In other words, what am I getting, right? What's in it for me at this price mm -hmm. point? And I think, and in the industry as a whole, right, is really also facing this. Um, yeah. Think, you know, get into that whole story later. But, uh, you know, a prime example of this is last weekend, I met a friend of mine who was an engineer at BMW, North America, and he just recently picked up a 440 convertible as his, as his company lease. Right. It's a good nice choice. San Remo green mm -hmm. on Cognac, very pretty car. Um, and $76,000 MSRP. Uh, well, it, it had that's, a vinyl that's interior, cheap. Had a okay. vinyl interior, <laughs> had a vinyl interior, had 18 inch wheels, had no neck warmers, did not have a built in wind deflector of any kind, did not have ventilated seats. You know, does it at least have roll down windows? Yeah, it had the base base LED headlights, which are fine, but I would have expected, <laughs> you know, some. I mean, we're talking near eighty grand. Then I took a look, and the thing That's started so much seventy one six. The windows are yeah. right. For it's not X even an M, right? Yeah, for an X Drive four forty, right? I don't call yeah. it four forty because that's not really an M. And, and do also, they put an M on it, or they put an M on it? You know, um, yeah. Okay. That's what we call the halfway house of BMW marketing. Um, so just really. Um, a disappointing car to drive, especially at seventy six thousand um, dollars. Yeah, thousand dollars. That's like. Have you guys had any experience with the latest four at all? Well, I I drove the i four, but that's a very different beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, any of the gas force. I, you know, this thing was an X drive convertible. So I mean, yes, there are ultimately big compromises from having an X drive convertible. But you know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but we're talking about a forty three hundred pound car. Um, yeah, I had a so I had a 2018 before I had the quad, um, and it was a 430 uh, convertible, um, but it was like 3,800 pounds roughly. Yeah, so they've this, gone up. This is preposterous, and it doesn't feel that fast for 380 horsepower because it's so heavy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and it just you know when the suspension unloads because in Westchester, as you know, you know there's a lot of curvy winding roads and hilly terrain. Right. And so when yeah. the suspension loads and unloads, right, which I have many stories from the proving grounds of driving cars quite fast, um, uh, it just feels very discombobulated and like loosey goosey. And the steering is just totally dead. I have an M2 and that has e pass, right? And so that's not exactly the last word in feel, but this is like. What color is it? Mine is Important Long question. Beach Blue. Mine is Long Beach Blue. The best color, uh, yeah. M2, M2 competition. It's a 21. Um, Respect. great time to buy a car right before, you know, you're going to leave. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I just, yeah, but this car was strange, you know, only two years separate that car from my car. Right. And I know there's different animals, but 
it, it just felt unfinished. I mean, the, 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 just totally discombobulated. And a ZF8 speed rate, another automatic that, that we know BMW is perfectly capable of tuning. You know, they, we mm -hmm. know that they can do that and they do it well. I had a 23X5 loaner when the M2 was in for just regular service, an oil change. And that car was great. Things shifted, like, you know, snapped off shifts. This thing, even in Sport Plus, you know, it would wait a half a beat before shifting. And it just was the weirdest, like the trans wasn't calibrated correctly. And then the the steering, no matter what mode you were in, was always light. And it just, it just, nothing weighted up properly. The car was just really discombobulated and stupid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The price spread of BMWs is what gets me because like 76,000 gets you a whole bunch of other BMWs that can deliver such a different driving experience. Like 76,000. A lot of money. Probably a little more than the G80 M3 that I had on the well, 76 grand is a loaded M2. Yeah. It gets loaded you a really nice M2. Yeah. And you can. So, so it begs the question, right? No, no. Comparing apples to apples, right? Your M4 convertible is 100 and probably equivalent convertible is $112,000, something like that, $110,000. Um, th why that car is automatic X-Drive only, I don't understand. It's wow, it is? <laughs> yeah, the M4 is only available in a convertible as automatic X-Drive. Um, the similar. M4 or the 440i? Yes, correct. Or, They're only, well, no, okay. the, the 440 is available as rear-wheel drive. You, you don't have to get X-Drive. Oh, okay. But the M4 is X Drive only now. The M4 convertible is X Drive automatic oh, only. Convertible. Okay. Yeah, the coupe you wow. can get in, in stick. There are way too many drive. models yeah. and trims. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to change, right? So they have like 26 product lines and they have uh, the number of permutations. Like, you know, that was one of the big things at Alpha, which I'll get into, is complexity reduction. Mm -hmm. So you hear this term a lot, right? Um, the worst part was the French, they called it diversity reduction. I was like, that is not a term. We should Ooh, use. yeah. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> um, you know, so we kept it as complexity reduction because we, you know, we had our own formula. Everybody has a formula. FCA has some crazy formula that measure build complexity. And essentially, you know, while we all lament the loss of individualized builds, right, there's a there's a real science to this because your your cost of manufacturing goes up exponentially for the number mm -hmm. of combinations you have. Not only that, but it's also your quality problems go up exponentially for the number of builds you have, right? You know, Alpha used to have you know, three or four interior options, 15 paint colors, uh, set, you know, 14 standalone options, four packages, you know, it just became untenable, right? From a met well, they said they said that's why uh, the they've improved like the JD Power yes. initial quality stuff, right? And the other problem, yeah. the other plus point of all of that, right, is on the used market, right, in residuals, which is a big part of luxury. So, just so you guys know, a little fun, some facts and figures, right? Um, when I was at FCA, which is not that long ago, or Stellantis, whatever you want to call it, uh, this mm -hmm. week. Um, is it Stellantis or Stellantis? I used. I didn't really give a shit. So no, I don't <laughs> I either. Say, I, 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 I don't really either. But I just am like, what did I say it wrong? Our, our our French overlords used to say Stellantis, but oh, okay. you know, I'll uh, say it that way from now on. I used to say whatever used to sound great with a French accent. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, you know, make no mistake. That's why profitability for Dodge is reported in euros. So anyway, um, but anyway, neither here nor there. 
Um, Wait, Dodge Profits? No, no, I mean, just in general, Group Profits. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> the company is, uh, I think, based for probably for tax purposes in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where was I? Um, complexity, right. You know, so so on the secondary market, right, your benefit of that is there's fewer undesirable combinations out there, right? There's only so many variants of a vehicle, right? So it mm-hmm. makes it more desirable to the customer on the secondary market because they're not going to feel like they're not going to be these weird configurations of cars just chilling on lots forever, right? It's, someone doesn't want, you know, for example, give you an example, St- uh, Stelvio Quad, right? Which is actually a pretty rare car. Uh, we only made... Yeah, I re- I've seen one on the road. I see rare. them at dealers. We only made about two to 400 of them a year. Okay. Extremely rare car. Whereas with mm. Julia, we made about 900 or so quads a year. Between, okay. between 800 and 1,000, roughly. Right. And that's yeah. pretty decent considering the price point, you know, uh, and, and given the size of the company, right? BMW for Comtrast used to make, I think, uh, or sell, used to, used to sell between six and 8,000 M3s a year. So, you know, we were making about a, a sixth of that, which based on market penetration and everything else makes a certain amount of sense. Um, mm-hmm. But Silvio Quad, once in a while, you would get some schmuck who would order it with the carbon racing seats from Sparco. And okay. you know, if there's ever been a stupid, more stupid option for a crossover, it is the Sparco carbon racing seat, <laughs> a $3,500 option. And we mm-hmm. once got a car into Danbury, the, the, the customer, which is not unheard of, the customer decided not to take delivery because they didn't want the car, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and this car sat for two years unsold oh. because of the racing oh. seats, you know, and, and <laughs> you see this stuff like one option could do that. So there are real considerations. You know, we're not just building cars for the primary market, right? We build cars also for the secondary market because your residual yeah. <laughs> is really, really important. Just a little fun fact in general, about 60% of luxury cars are leased. Roughly 60% mm-hmm. of sales of luxury cars are leased. Now that varies by market, by local market. It makes sense. Right? It's yeah. about 60%. In the mainstream market, it's about 30 to 35%. Um, believe it or not, mainstream cars are generally bought much more often, which I always found interesting. Um, maybe it's just. Well, it's because they depreciate so much. Like, well, yes and really... no. Right? So mainstream cars tend to depreciate less than luxury cars do by far. That's what uh, I meant. The luxury yeah. cars depreciate so much that at least, yeah. Right. So you know, people don't want to get caught holding the bill, but um, mm-hmm. but it also depends on on the brand in question. So uh, we did a lot. I mean, I was very proud of the work that I did there. You know, in terms of uh, arresting the decline of our residual value, and 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 you know, when I left, Julia was at a fifty percent residual, which is pretty solid after three years and forty five thousand mm-hmm. miles, given that the product is almost eight years old. Right. So, so, you know, give you an idea, a G23 series was about 52%. So, you know, pretty good. I don't know what that means. Can you explain it? I feel like probably our listeners don't either. (laughs) The way residual works, right? So residual is only one component of how leasing works, but it's a pretty strong indication of what your lease price is going to be. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So, you know, as, as you guys know, a lease is just what you're paying depreciation amortized over a certain number of payments between the beginning and the end of the lease. Right. Uh, AKA your rental fee, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so residual is critical with high, with luxury brands because they're so high lease. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, and Rivian before this wasn't really into leasing. Now they've just started to lease because they can finally uh, build enough trucks to satisfy leasing customers because people order a bunch of them on lease, but they're very expensive. Yeah. Right? And, and they're not going to be a cheap lease because BEVs are still, and when you hear me use the term BEV, I mean, battery electric vehicle, we use the term right. as BEV. Um, uh, we are going to, you know, see like th- there's still a big problem with residual on BEVs because Elon has basically said, fuck the secondary market, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to lower my price. Elon is not doing anything different than any other traditional automaker, except that he's not using incentives or he's rarely using incentives. He's just taking the price down, right? Yeah. Which, and you can buy one we, online. Right. The reason we use incentives is so that we don't completely screw over the residual market, right? And mm-hmm. create a vibrant secondary market. Um, so you can see that now the effect it's having by Tesla dropping the price of BEVs drastically. Yeah. You see it now. Like, uh, I, I just recently saw it was like a, a, a two, one or two year old Polestar two with like 9,000 miles on, right? Basically new mm-hmm. 27 or $28,000 performance one with all wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. that was a $62,000 car. Yeah. And maybe 52 with incentives. It is now 28. It is like one or two years old. You know, that is appreciation. So, so, you know, anyway, I digress. So, sorry, I went off track there a little bit. No, it's fine. That's what this podcast is. But yeah, so that was, that was really the, the fascinating side of, of the way things would work. But, you know, ALG is the big residual company, right? They do all the ratings for residuals. And you, so you learn the chess okay. game of not mm-hmm. pumping residuals, but modifying residuals and 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 influencing residuals positively because the automaker can only really control about 20 percent of the residual for a car 80 percent mm. of it is roughly economic conditions and market conditions and secondary market and auction values of cars but anyway i digress i'm more curious about your history with alpha how did you come and if you've talked about this my bad but how did you come to be involved with alpha romeo vehicles and what made you decide to buy alpha Gabe? yeah i haven't talked about it publicly i think we talked about it on the phone a little bit i don't know i kind of wanted something different i had a bmw4 and i was kind of just bored of it it has a reputation also and i'm like oh alpha drivers have no reputation it's just i can like i can not use my blinker and no one judges me um, I'm kidding, but <laughs> I want to try a statistic that Julia drivers were 40 percent higher chance of getting a speeding ticket somewhere in some independent publication a long time ago. I don't know if that's changed. But I, I think just I remember hilarious. hearing about that. I've like not gotten one yet. I've not gotten one yet, but I can understand why. I've gotten a couple not in an alpha. So I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I got <laughs> one in a Prius. That was the only time I got a speeding ticket. A Prius um, of all things. Mm-hmm. Wow. I get a lot of speed camera tickets, uh, but I don't count that. Well, New York City. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, I meant to ask how. So, what is how is your ownership experience with the quad been? Like, what have you enjoyed? Oh, it's in the shop. Oh, it has been for like two weeks now, um, and right. it always it is like fifty to sixty percent of the time. Yeah, it's going really well. You signed you up have, for it. You have the newest model year restoration project. <laughs> Yeah, it said five owners. I am trying to basically get it back to if it were new. What year is it? 2018. Oh, uh, that's why. Yeah. Um, yep. So first gen, it's had some problems. Um, but I'm. Mean, we're, we're tough, tough model years for that car. 
Um, 18 for Stelvia was a tough model year. Nothing personal, but it's true. Um, yeah, yeah. I Do I regret it? Yes. I probably would have leased a new one if I could redo it, but I've got the extended warranty. Uh, a lot of it's covered, a lot of the issues. Right now, they keep finding more and more issues, and it's all in the same bill, so it's one deductible, and I'm like, all right, keep doing that, please. Um, also, I have to pay... I'm currently paying a daily rate for parking in the city because there's I'm on Roosevelt Island. There's no part monthly parking availability. Uh, so I'm like, oh, this is free parking to leave it at the dealer. Yes, um, absolutely. So I am in no rush to get it back. And I'm getting like a press car every week pretty much right now. Um, sure, and right. plus we have the Tenale and it's new. So it's been pretty reliable. Well, if you want a 24, you can reach out to uh, Nick uh kappa at stellantis he's our pr guy he's a super nice guy but, yep i get a lot of emails from him yeah, um, nice guy, but highly recommend anyway i was gonna ask uh so have you been enjoying Twinale? i hope that's been more pleasant oh yeah it's been fine i mean there have been two recalls so far but i don't neither one has affected us uh, one of them was they were catching on fire it's like a connector was loose or something in some of them it's been a lot of like wiring issues the only problem we've had is when we got it the courtesy lights didn't work we got that fixed it just wasn't wired properly that's a big recurring theme with a lot of uh fca and stellantis vehicles every single fca product that my friends and family come into contact with they're always some kind of electrical quirk my friend has a Jeep Wrangler Unlimited with the two liter turbo engine. And I think some sort of like sensor or module failed mm-hmm. on her front axle. So now she can't engage four wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My dad's old Durango always had a taillight that went out. My old Fiat 500 always had. Um, there was always one light, whether it was a taillight or headlight, always one light that went out every single year. Um, Don't you like that? Keeps you on your toes. Uh, oh, yeah. My headlight went out on the Julia. That was the first big problem I had. So after I put, I, I got it at 47,000 miles as 52 now. And the first 4,000 or so were fine. And then after that, it's been kind of fun. So uh, the first issue was one of the headlights went out. Still never found out why. Um, I mean, it's LED headlight. I don't know. It's I will say that 19, 19 plus have been a lot. Like, yeah, I've heard. I, I thought up yeah <laughs> like I have, yep. I have i've driven them extensively i've driven them on track i've driven them aggressively you know they they're tough they're tough when they're when they're beaten on um, mm-hmm. but you know i guess early early teething products but you know with tonali it kind of doesn't surprise me in the sense of first model year you're there's always going to be gremlins you there's a, yeah uh, otherwise but, we haven't had any problems it's generally been a very pleasant vehicle from what I, you know we were pleasantly surprised by just how good the reviews were. Like I drove, so, you know, fun fact, there was a plan initially to bring the two liter here, um, mm-hmm. which we declined to do mostly out of just, it didn't really make sense. Alongside uh, the Hornet? Uh, yeah, initially. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, we really, we really didn't work side by side with the Hornet team. They were doing their own thing. So right. uh, we just thought this would what be did, best. What were they doing then? I mean, there, there's I not mean, a I, huge... I don't know. No, I think they were, they were really gunning. <laughs> they were gunning for the Mazdas of this world, right? They, that okay. Was their, that was what I think they were targeting. Um, I think you and I met because we were arguing on Facebook with other people. Oh, yeah. Um, like, teamed <laughs> up together. Yeah, I mean, a, lot of people, a lot of people don't understand um, that 
that those two customers will never see each other in 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 the real world, right? Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot on Facebook, oh, go on down to the Dodge dealer. But the reality is, if you have a few bucks, I'm not saying rich, but if you have a few bucks and you want to buy something nice for yourself, I'm not looking for a value play. I'm willing to spend the money. So, like, yeah. you know, like I'm not going to go buy a Dodge if I want an Alfa Romeo, right? On the, on the plug-in hybrid version, it's uh, it's a difference between like thousand or two thousand dollars, right? Between yeah. So uh, realistically, right? I mean, you look at most Hornet RTs on a lot; they're like fifty-one, fifty-two, right? Average transaction, like MSRP. I can't speak to incentives and what because they are changing mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, or if there are any incentives, I don't think there are. But you know, the the tonales are a little pricey, some of them. But generally speaking, you can find tonales anywhere between fifty and fifty-six. That's so around the same. It's not like there's a huge spread between the two cars. So, you know, they have separate dealer networks. The customer is very, very different, right? We, you know, Tonali's goal was really to target a, a more balanced customer, right? So we were looking less at, you know, Alpha is, when I was there, Alpha was 76% bought by men. Mm -hmm. right? So we were looking to kind of even that out a little more towards 50-50 men, women, right? We were trying right. to make a more multifaceted brand and kind of get away from this, romanticized uh it's not that we wanted to reject the heritage of the company because we obviously styled the car using 80s alpha styling influences mm -hmm. and 90s alpha styling influences but we wanted to bring a more balanced approach and so some people who have complained about tonale's kind of the steering isn't the sharp blah, 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 i said yes the point of that is because when people have that laser fast steering it's not great in a car with a 104 inch wheelbase so yeah. it makes it wildly unstable. So yeah. <laughs> you don't want one and a half turns lock to lock when the wheelbase is as short as an E36 M3, right? So mm -hmm. like, or shorter, right? So um, so that's, you know, to give you an idea, Tonali's wheelbase is shorter than my M2 by two inches. Wow. Right? So it's, it's a small car. It's basically, and it's actually smaller than X1, but it has the same amount of room as X1 inside. And it's the same width the the way the cargo space is, it's so well optimized. If you look at like the dimensions internally, it has it has more space in some ways than the Stelvio. Yeah. Uh, it's just yeah. headroom is very low, but everything else. Yeah, headroom is low. I mean, part of it was aero is so critically important, right? Right. Uh, yep. for PF, right. We want to eke out as much range as we can on that car. So the trade-off was was headroom, right? To give that teardrop mm -hmm. shape. You'll notice it goes kind of shapes like a teardrop in the side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the goal for that was to uh, was to really keep the car clean through the air to get the range we needed. Um, yeah. And, and frankly, you know, when you look at the price point, right, forty-two grand basically um, for a Sprint. I find that it's the only electrified vehicle in the space besides a Tesla that's that cheap, you know, that's a luxury vehicle, right? I'm not yeah, people ignore that. that it's, people ignore the fact that it's a plug-in hybrid when looking at the, when comparing prices. It's right. uh, like, they're comparing it to the X1, they're comparing it to the Hornet, um, they're comparing it's it to expensive. the Audi. It's expensive, I'm not going to lie, it's expensive compared to an X1, right? It's three, $4,000 more. Yeah. But, relative i mean i say expensive i mean relative to the competition right especially something some penalty box like a q3 have you guys ever driven a q3 it's the worst vehicle i've ever driven in my life i've heard i wanted to after you said that i drove a tonali two liter with a q3 an xc40 uh t5 previous gen x1 because the new one wasn't out yet uh and and something else 
I mean, Tonali was by far, I mean, I don't want to drink the Kool-Aid, but it was, it was just a cut above in terms of NVH, in terms of handling, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the two most disappointing cars for me, which other people loved, was the XC40 and the Q3. Mm-hmm. And, and I could not fathom why the gas, I don't know if the Bev XC40 is like, it's probably not, but the gas XC40 was like the NVH, the noise was unbelievable. The road noise, like it was so loud and it was 44 grand and it had no sunroof and it had HK and like weird wool crap on the doors. And it just, and it made, you know, like, on the DSG, you know, on the DFG cars where they make that little between shifts. Oh yeah. Right. This was doing that, but back into the cabin under the rear seat. <laughs> but you couldn't hear anything from the outside. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen. You know, and this car had like 400 miles on it. It was brand new, XC40. Wow. Just um, a nasty car. And and then the Q3 was even nastier. Speakers of nasty plastic, buttons just strewn about the cabin. Uh, the one we had was $48,000, which I could not believe. Um, rolled like a ship. You know, spongy brakes, did not have a dual clutch, had the eight speed automatic, which is even a stranger. Volkswagen Group and how they choose their transmissions is like, it's like throwing darts at a dartboard. This one gets a dual clutch. This one gets an electronic. This one, you know what this? Uh, like, New anyway. Golf gets PDK. Well, I don't understand. <laughs> the A6 Allroad has a dual clutch, but that regular A6 has an eight speed ZF. Huh? Uh, I just, I don't understand. And they, you know, they, uh, like if you want more, you'd be more likely to tow with the all road than you would with the regular A6. So I'd rather have the ZF instead of a dual clutch. And so it just, it's just, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the reality was like the PHEV was better balanced. Like the PHEV, we went with the PHEV drivetrain because A, it was a way to differentiate from Hornet. B, um, it was a 50 50 drivetrain, uh, 50 50 weight distribution, basically. It's like 51 49 or something. You know, nobody else in the class could, 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 could touch that, right? And then you had PS4AS, which for an all season is a great tire. And, and you had like 13 and a half inch brakes in the front, which is pretty sizable for a D, you know, for a disc setup. And, and it was just like, it was just, you know, kind of a different kind of spin on Alpha, but with some of the performance things that make it Alpha. Right. And so a five and a half second zero to 60 is pretty, pretty solid. Uh, we were, pretty yeah. happy at, you know, and, and almost 350 pound feet of torque. It, 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 it does what it needs to do without having to spend. Cause realistically, right. Outside of Tesla, cause they're the elephant in the room, but outside of Tesla, any Bev with 300 miles of range is a $60,000 proposition minimum mm-hmm. that, that you want to be in. I'm not talking about ID four, right. That's a terrible car. Like, oh God. A pretty well equipped Maki is in the high fifties, low sixties. An Ionic mm-hmm. Five is in the high fifties, well equipped, right? Uh, and 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 most of the stuff that dealers are stocking is top trim. They're not top stocking base models, right? Because mm-hmm. they want to bump up their transaction price because they get a cut of that pie. So, you know, from a pricing perspective, we felt this was a little bit of a blue ocean that we could explore, ex- you know, exploit. Um, and it's a cool, it was, a, it was just an interesting challenge because, you know, I'm not a particularly big crossover guy. I have a 12 year old three series and an M2. So I'm not a particularly big crossover guy whatsoever. Um, and, and so this thing was kind of fun. It was like being in a little bit of a hatchback. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of comparisons to like a, it's like a lifted hot hatch and I'm kind of like, yeah, that, that suits it. It's more fun than most SUVs I've been in. 
I guess you have sure. to drive something like this, at least drive something fun. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And that was why I stepped it up to the Veloce uh, was so I could get the paddle shifters and the Brembos. You can get one on wife. the TI too. You can get on the TI, but the pricing makes, we intentionally did that so that it would force people up to Veloce, right? Because yeah. okay. the second you check off like- Oh yeah, because you it's an option. Yes, that's exactly why. I, I compared the prices. I was like, oh, the option, adding the option on uh, the TI doesn't make any sense when I- uh yeah i could step it up the veloce for barely anymore um makes a ton of sense i yeah i get it and my wife just wanted it because it's it's green oh yeah (laughs) i actually i actually chose the color name oh really i chose the name for the color there they found you i just looked up what it what it was referencing last week because someone asked me juan manuel fangio who was argentinian drove for alpha i believe in the 40s 30s and so you know we always made our colors about historic alphas typically right or places in italy uh, mm-hmm. the or, or misano blue or whatever right um i wanted it you know alpha the top two reasons people buy alfa romeos at least according to Merritt's new vehicle car survey at the time was the way they look and the way they drive right and so you know it, a car uh that is a driver's car should be named after some people who drove it so in terms of colors right so uh and we we you know it's a way alpha is big on embracing heritage right so as part of that we we chose to embrace our heritage the other fun fact is that you know we can't just call it verde montreal because it's actually a different color believe it or not in in europe they call it that i don't know why but it is actually a different tone of green uh yeah someone corrected me when i said in the in the in the facebook group when i i called it verity montreal i was like oh i yeah i didn't realize it was a different color that was months ago you actually look at the two colors next to so verde montreal is a tri-coat meaning it's got different shades of green it goes through the paint booth three times Mm -hmm. Uh, and verde montreal i'm sorry verde fanjo is just a regular metallic so it goes through the paint booth once and it doesn't have kind of this olivey kind of bright, a little hint of yellow in the sun. You'll see a yellowishness to Verde Montreal, where there's a more of a bluishness to Verde Fangio. And it's actually quite noticeable in the sun. Yeah, um, no, I, I've, I've definitely noticed it when I've uh, looked at the quads at the dealer. Verde Montreal is only available on the quadrifolios, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and actually the special edition. So there was a special edition for Canada. We did 30 of them called the Giulia Speciale that I wanted to do for the U.S., but they couldn't produce enough at the right schedule, so they would have landed at dealers at, like, the slowest selling season. So ultimately, we just would decline to do it for the U.S., but we did get it on the two-liter for a little bit in Canada and a few other places. So uh, it was kind of neat. You know, we enjoyed it. It was it was fun. And actually, I think for... Uh, uh, there's a Buzz model coming out, Tributo Italiano, which they just announced. I think it's going to be available on the two liters for that buzz model uh special mm-hmm. special edition so there are there are they're kind of spreading the love around but but it was it's a great color alpha had one of the best palettes you know until they kind of cut even when they cut down the palette a bit they still had some great colors only we could paint a car caramel and then Acura copied us and started painting their cars caramel you know um you know ochre ochre technically um you know tiger i pearl my ass um so um but acura is actually an interesting story because i'm friendly with jonathan rivers who's the big lead product guy at acura and uh you know switching gears for a second they they have really very quietly had this little product revolution at acura 
um, where MDX has now become a good car. TLX, while it's heavy, it's still Jared better. Jared just reviewed the Type S. <laughs> amazing car. Yeah. Great car, right? TLX, while it's heavy, it's best it's ever been in probably 15 years, right? Since the original, since the 08 TL. Uh, Integra is fabulous. My dad bought one last year. It's great. I've driven it extensively. Mm-hmm. Even the one we have. Yeah, Type S is a monster. It's a great car. Um, needs better seats, but it's otherwise a great car. It looks better in the Type R. You don't have to deal with the goofball oh, yeah. wing. Um, and it's not that much more money than a Type R. And it's faster. Slightly. Because of aero. So... <laughs> Uh, it's so, and, and, and even ZDX, even though it's a rebody GM product, it's great looking, you know, the proportions are good, um, for what it is, uh, and as is prologue. So I think, I think, I think Honda and, and, um, and Acura have been on this interesting little product trajectory here where they've learned that maybe they should stop screwing around and, and have really cleaned up their act. I yeah, they've been on a massive upward spike that I don't think everyone's, uh, appreciating at the moment because their cars are starting they to should be bragging more. more they really should be bragging more but they've done it very quietly right yes um definitely and they yeah. love their understatedness yeah and I, I it's very japanese of them right you seen the new accord it doesn't look like anything at all you know it's that's a weird nice. misstep because honda product lately has also been kind of doing all right right that the, the the uh the pilot looks less like a van thank god the uh the the whatever the hell else the type r is pretty good new civic is great um you know i i don't really understand the accord i think they they took everything that was because the 10th gen was a great car um this is a heavy facelift of that but they've made it worse and they've made it look like a bar of soap softer slower more comfortable i've heard which apparently is what they said their customers care about the most but I mean, you didn't have to get rid of the other cool stuff that made the last Accord great. Even, even the two-liter with the 10-speed, even if it had the automatic, manual was great, but even if it had the automatic, it's a great car. Great car to drive, good chassis, you know, good responsive, great steering. I don't I don't understand what the plan is there. It seems like Acura is benefiting, whereas Honda is like, bah? you know, it could be that they're trying to create more distance between Honda and Acura so that there's a reason to go to Acura. Mm-hmm. Um, bespoke platforms, better styling, better drivetrain options. You know, I think personally the TLX and the MDX are crying out for a PHEV, but they're probably going straight electric because obviously ZDX is here. There's no, it's not in, you know, it's not, uh, it's not coincidence that a ZDX looks almost identical in terms of styling to an MDX, not identical, oh, yeah. but in terms of the, the bits and pieces that matter, right? There's a very easy leap for the customer to make to that product. So it blew I my mind when we were at the LA Auto Show. And yeah. Gabe was actually telling me, like, can you believe this is the GM Ultium? And I'm like, it's better than oh, the, in the middle of the podcast. You found out. In the middle of the podcast, I found out. And it was cool. I get why. A little less excited about it that it's not an in house Honda thing. But No, I know that. But I think the irony here is that it's actually going to end up selling better than the GM product. <laughs> I can see that. I can totally see right? that. Definitely. Yeah, said no CarPlay. Why? I don't know. Because they claim, well, Google's built in now. We don't need to do that. You know, the reality is, what's the deal with? What's the deal with Google? It's it's it was called Android Automotive, and now GM was telling me it's called just Google now, which is confusing. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, so <laughs> Android Android is even more confusing, right? So Android, which that's a whole other story, was set up by a lunatic named Andy Rubin. 
if you mm -hmm. want to read an interesting story, go read about him and his weird uh, desire to inappropriately touch people. Uh, but anyway, um, but anyway, Android has two 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 big OSs, right? Android Auto is what we know as the mirroring software, right? Uh, where your phone is mirrored onto the car's car's display, and that's Android Auto. Android Automotive is an actual native OS for an infotainment system. Um, right. I understand the difference between those two. We actually have an article on it, but uh, now they're saying Android Automotive is just called Google. Because it doesn't make any sense because Android Automotive as a as a branding exercise, think about it. It's too confusing for the company. It's terrible. It's terrible, but like constantly really? switching it up is also kind of terrible. But my guess is they're just calling it Google because people understand Google. It's a much more yeah. familiar brand name. You know, the reality is I don't think there's, you know, I think ultimately Android as a concept, that name will vanish ultimately mm -hmm. uh, in, in the long term, right? Um, because Google is the more mature, more recognized, better brand equity um, term. So it's Google OS, Google Auto OS, whatever it's called these days, uh, you know, Zebra, I don't know. Google is is the predominant thing, right? It's what powers the Polestar system. And it will power GM systems as well. It'll mean native Google Maps. So that's their kind of rationale that most people are using CarPlay because of Google Maps. But it's like someone taking away your favorite pair of pants because they just don't like the way they look. Like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go away. You yeah. Um, I, it just. It's... When is this supposed? To, when is this supposed to happen? I thought they. I, I, I kind of thought they backpedaled because uh, all their 2025 models seem to still have it, or oh, at least the 2024 did. I think starting with 24 model year, they were supposed to start okay. in lyric and uh, Demuro just tested one. Addy Doug just tested one without CarPlay, like a, a new. I think it was Silverado EV. Now this I need to ask about, like this whole Google stuff is like. I think it's going to ultimately backfire on them. I think they're ultimately going to put it back on the cars. But the gas cars, the weirdest thing is the gas cars are still going to have it. Oh, okay. Only on the EVs. This is just EVs. That's that's what the initial thing said, that it was just the okay. EVs. You know, the thing no one's buying already, and it's just another thing that will detract. Well, well it's not that it's no one's buying, right? That, you know, I, I, I've, I've kind of not been against the media on this one, but it's been a little bit of doom scrolling on the media's part because... EVs, you know, the reason demand is soft is two things, right? We launched in with the most expensive, most, ex most, yep. you know, high performance BS products that nobody needed, right? We, nobody needs a F-150 with 780 pound feet of torque. Mm -hmm. Like, How do you know? let's, let's, you know, let's get something a little more affordable because the average lightning. The top is trim starts at $100,000 now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but like <laughs> to me, cool car, but it's 150 grand. A lot of them, there are cheaper ones, but they're still 80. It's not that cheap. Yeah, and they don't stock the base model. Right, and so any any EV you actually want to be seen, again, I'm not talking about Tesla because they're the animal in the room. They can play games with pricing. They have the margin to spare, whatever, right? But their products are also quite old now, except for Cybertruck. Mm -hmm. Even though Model 3 is getting a facelift, you'll notice that they really haven't made a big stink about product this year, aside from Cybertruck. Like the fanfare around Model 3 Highland is very low. They are they are much more interested in everybody switching over to Nax because I think Tesla, while because I don't think Cybertruck is going to be the volume seller that we think it is. I don't think it's going to sell in the hundreds of thousands of units like the others are because it's quite polarizing and it's also just physically huge, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I and think final pricing is way more expensive than everyone. Final pricing is way more expensive, and I also think that it's just you know economics hasn't changed, right? As price goes up, quantity goes down. It's basic law of economics. Yep. Well, you know, Japan supply and demand. But I think the issue will become that Tesla, I think, is trying to reposition itself very quickly as an infrastructure provider and a service provider. Makes sense. Um, right, and it's a little scary that they control. Well, Musk controls the satellites that go overhead, the charging stations on the ground, and God knows what else, right? You know, and the rockets that take the satellites into space. So, like, it's a little convenient to have this kind of ecosystem happening here. But anyway, and the platform by which all of this information gets disseminated, in theory, X, if he doesn't chase every single person away with his crazy remarks. But but if you look at EVs that are not Teslas just for a second, because frankly, I don't like the way they drive. I don't like how they feel. I think the material quality is shit. Uh, and I've seen them taken apart in a lab and it's like laughable how, how they're built. Peculiar too, because some of the castings are very advanced and, and wildly uh, technologically and, and amazing and then some of the stuff in there is just like what the is that glue is that house glue what the hell is that but you know you look at something desirable i mean i don't know what's a desirable ev that's like under 60 grand that's nice to be in that's like maybe mach e and ionic what about the polestar ionic six polestar two is sixty two thousand dollars i think it starts in the 50s but a base model polestar 2 i think somewhere in the 40s or xc40 recharge i think starts at 50 i think they just revised it so now the base model is switching from front drive to rear drive which would be fun for those who care well the Mm -hmm. bottom line is none of these cars are qualifying for the tax credit because they're not made in the states true right right and so you're still dealing with a $50,000 plus vehicle, minimum 50, right? Your, your entry is 50. You know, Mustang, Mach-E for any kind of decent range is 50 something. The Ionic 5, right? I think the Bolt and the Volt are going to be gone. Or well, the Bolt doesn't There's have- no Volt. Uh, it's the Bolt. Uh, EUV. Yeah, the two Bolts are on their the way two Bolts, which Remember, the Bolt is an old, you know, the current Bolt was an, a reskin of the original Bolt. So mm-hmm. it's a very old car. Second generation Bolt until it Yes, it is the second generation Bolt. And uh, they were built just down the block from where I lived in Michigan for two years. But the, you know, they only charge at 50 kilowatts. They don't even have like real DC fast charging. So like they're quite, you know, but again, you were paying like 26 grand, right? So like, what did you expect for 26 grand? And it was still better than a Chatamo Nissan Leaf. So <laughs> like, you know, but even a Nissan Aria is like, is is 50 something thousand dollars reasonably equipped right mid-level mm-hmm. and so you know you're looking at most interest rates are eight to eight and a half percent like i just had the m2 serviced in august right uh, at the end of its service plan because you know the warranty and the initial maintenance plan and i still had maintenance plan left when i got the car and i was told that i have a pretty good credit rating and they were telling me i could qualify for the low low rate of 8.36 percent on a new car loan Mm-hmm. and and yeah. you know even at fifty thousand dollars even with a reasonable amount down like five or ten grand that's expensive it's expensive yeah. yep. it's a six hundred dollar a month car payment or more seven hundred the average car payment right now i'm not sure if it's lease or finance but in general i remember reading this last year is seven hundred and forty five dollars a month Woo. yeah i know uh people paying like twelve hundred dollars a month for like camaros now Right. And then I don't know. Okay. That person's an idiot. Um, yeah. Oh, no, he is. Yeah. You know, but, but my point is, right. 
Affordability, I would argue, the biggest issue the industry faces, and they're not facing the music on because they are obviously very intent on having very high margin per unit, is affordability. It is the biggest single issue we face as an industry right now. You know, I mean, Alpha's big plans to go EV by 27. You know the cars are going to be probably ten, twenty thousand dollars more expensive easily because just because mm-hmm. because every all the geniuses who told us that the batteries are going to come down in price still have not. And that they were supposed to come down in price by twenty-five or twenty-six. I have not seen these major breakthroughs. You know, solid state supposedly is coming, but I've also heard that solid state doesn't like DC fast charging very much. Oh great. That should be uh Mercedes-Benz has been testing it on public buses in Europe, and it can't. It takes eight or nine hours to charge because it cannot accept a DC fast charge in a traditional way. Now, don't quote me there. I'm not an expert on DC fast charging, but this is from what I've been reading recently. You Americans know, will love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the energy density is very impressive on solid state, and you use far fewer cells, so you do save a lot of weight which is really critical because it's just not practical driving around in a 7,300-pound Rivian you know, or a 9,000-pound Hummer or a 5,500-pound Lucid. A Taycan is 5,200 pounds, and it is barely bigger than a 5 Series, you know, if not the same size. I mean, that's preposterous for how heavy that car is, considering... I mean, when you see a Taycan on the road, I mean, it's not small, but it's not a super huge thing, you know? I have one more question for you about uh, charging, and then I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, the what's the deal with uh, like now that everyone's moving to Nax? It seems like what is going to happen to uh, the existing cars that use CCS? Is there an adapter? What is there not? Is there going to be one? Well, so for the companies that have said they're going to switch to Nax, everybody has said they're going to get a free adapter for like twenty three, okay. twenty four million of your cars. Okay. Like Ford, for example, right? Um, I don't know how that's going to work. Tesla has the magic block. Stellantis and VW have not committed to switching. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stellantis hasn't even hinted at switching. And they are the world's third largest automaker. So that's going to be interesting if they don't switch. And why? Will that leave them behind or will they be, you know, maybe foresight here, right? It is a little stupid to have NAX as the defining standard in the U.S. Mm-hmm. The reason being, everybody complains that the CCS is so hard to unplug and whatever. Uh, it's the standard in Europe. Yeah, on CCS, Tesla's too. CCS yeah. type, it's a different kind of CCS thing. It's type two or something. Um, but still, basically similar. Um, so, you know, you're creating this North American only standard, which just to me reeks of stupidity. Um, yeah, sounds... personally. Not only that, but you're giving one person control essentially over the charging network, right? Tesla is being looked at as the answer to all of our problems, but... Can the network absorb, you know, 5x the volume that it's normally taking? And it's already busy, right? I mean, I've seen in LA, Derek, I'm sure you've seen in the West Coast, lines of Tesla chargers. Um, Yeah. So now everybody and their grandmother is going to be at a Tesla charger. And it gets even weirder because one of the problems I've seen in Europe, where they've been, you know, obviously sharing chargers for some time now because of CCS, none of these cars have their ports in the same place. Kia Soul EV, the port is in the front. On the Nero, it's in the front. On the F-150, it's on the front fender. I mean, like, again, it all depends on, and, and the spots, you know, they continue to build Tesla charging stations in parking lots or like parking lots. And so it's great if you have a Tesla and they're all in the back left corner. But what if you don't? I've seen this problem where, you know, Kyle yeah. Tom, I don't particularly love watching because I find him annoying. Nothing personal, Kyle. 
but just not my flavor of the week. But he has pointed out rightly so that it is becoming an issue in parking lots at Tesla chargers where you don't, you can't fit the same number of vehicles because of the charging port locations, which is crazy. Yep. Um, what does it mean? It means that, you know, Nax, I think CCS will continue to be around because there are so many cars that were still built. Remember, there's still uh, several hundred thousand cars that were built with CCS charging. There's PHEVs, there's BEVs, there's just whatever, right? Um, there's industrial vehicles that were built with that in mind. So uh, so it's not going anywhere. There will be legacy charge ports, and there will not there will be providers other than Tesla, EVgo, you know, Electrify America, et cetera. They will all have to modernize, but it's more trouble at this point to rip out the CCS connector than anything else because it's already integrated yeah. into the charger, right? So that's not going anywhere. But as far as the companies who have committed to this, they have claimed that all of their customers will get adapters. At least that's what I've heard. That's good. Um, you know, I don't know what that looks like, though. I yeah. don't know if there's anything that just plugs into the car, if it's the magic dock or what it is. And then the question is, can Tesla build enough charging stations fast enough? Can they equip them with magic dock fast enough? Um, mm -hmm. we, know, we know the service quality at the charging stations has also slipped, right? Yep. Pump okay. Quality. The Stradale. Oh yeah. What do you Let's want talk Stradale. Yeah. Uh -huh. Very, di very different topic. Um, yeah, yeah. Wh what's the deal with this? What? Uh, uh, 33 Stradale, which was, it was just initial, initially known as 33 internally, which is 33 in Italian. Hmm. Um, I first saw the sketches of this car in March of 2022. Okay. Um, wow. But it That's did not look yeah, I know. It did not look yeah. anything like this at the time. But I was sitting mm -hmm. in a room in the design dome with Mr. Imperato, myself, my boss, and Larry Dominique, the head of Alpha North America, and a few other people. And Jean-Philippe is a car guy, whether you like him or not. Uh, he is a car guy. He drives an Aston Martin V8 Vantage Manual. He is, he is through and through a car guy, born and raised in Alphas. Very passionate guy. Mm -hmm. uh, very excitable guy. He loves doing cool stuff when he can. He also recognizes that we don't get to do the cool stuff unless we get to pay for it. And so 33 was the goal of Alpha needed a Halo car. You know, mm -hmm. MC20 was interesting in that it was sort of a stillborn project for Alpha that had become Maserati's project. So this was, a, it was originally supposed to be an Alpha or? Yes, it was supposed to be whatever the successor to 8C was going to be. Some of them okay. called it 6C. I don't really know what the original name was. It was floated around. It had some interchangeability in terms of parts with Julia Quadrifoglio. Front bits of the front suspension. The Netuno engine is based on the same architecture as the 2.9 with bigger stroke. It's got different heads. It's got obviously bigger turbos. It's got a hotter cam. It's obviously got the fancy pre-chamber ignition and a few other things. So, you know, there's some differences, certainly. But it is from the same family. You'll notice if you listen to an MC20, it sounds eerily familiar to a Julia Quadrifoglio. <laughs> But at any rate, it's not to say they're the same engine. Stradale was proposed as a way to bring Halo specialness to the brand, right? It was going to be limited. It was not going to be a regular production vehicle like NSX. And it was going to capture on sort of the mystique of 33 Stradale, mm -hmm. which in my view is probably one of the top five prettiest cars of the 20th century, for sure. I just actually Agreed. saw one in person at the Alpha, at the Lime Rock Historic Festival in August. Lawrence Oriano was a very big Alfa Romeo collector, famous collector, uh, has one in his collection, an original, one of the one of the original 18. 
and it is a, a fascinating car. So a little bit of background. The original 33 Stradale, they made 18 of them. They made them in 1966 and 67. They, are, they use a 2-liter V8. That is a high revving V8, revs to, I think, 8,800 RPM or 8,200 RPM, made 230 horsepower. It was a street homologation version of the 33 Corsa, which was the race version. And when I say street version, I mean the roll bar is like an inch from your head. So it's barely a street car. Um, and, the, and, the, and the Lexan that they used is hand laid. So it's all weebly, you know, wobbly and like warped. So it looks like a fun mirror in the windows. But they're beautiful, delicate little cars, and they're just very, very pretty. All designed in-house, designed by Centro Stile in-house at Alfa Romeo. And a lot of people think, oh, it's Pinin Farina or something else. You know, it's a pretty little car. And a few of them were handed out as concept cars. So the Alfa Romeo Carabo and a few others were, were based on 33s. And so the idea came, you know, how do we celebrate the quintessential Alfa Romeo, right, as a halo, as a direction for the future? That was the idea. And so the theory was, it was actually quite innovative. We wouldn't build any of the cars until we had secured funding from every customer. So the customer had to pay down a certain down payment. And that mm -hmm. was how the car was funded, right? Instead of having to fund it internally. So it was actually quite ingenious, much like how Pagani or other low volume car makers source and fund their vehicles, right? They don't build anything. They don't order any supplies until the customer plonks down the cash. So pretty cool. The plan was to build 50-50 electric gas. And since the you know MC20 platform also supported a BEV architecture, as you know, there is a BEV version of yeah. MC20 coming, a Fulgore. They announced it at the launch a while ago. They showed kind of a rolling chassis. So the same is true here. Uh, it you know it's 750 horsepower in electric form and it's 620, which to me I think is a little I would have preferred about well over the 700 horse mark personally. Yeah. But the price is frankly ridiculous. It's one point six million. Okay, yeah, I thought so. I thought it was like almost two million. That was my problem with it. I mean, I don't want to badmouth it because like I'm yeah. I'm friendly with the global head of product planning at Alpha, a uh, product is uh, a super great guy, super passionate. But the price is ridiculous. I, I just think it's so expensive, and the performance is not. It's good. It's not Pagani Huayra R money. Good. $1.8 million is Koenigsegg money. Uh, it's Bugatti money. You can get a used Veyron for a million. I think they're going for about 1 to 1.2. And that is truly world-beating performance. It asks the question, you know, you're not buying this car because it's the last word in performance, but something in this with a 6 in the name. I mean, even T50 is about, mm. you know, two and change and that to me is amazing because it's manual it's got this twelve thousand rpm redline it's no turbos it's no compromise it's gordon murray it's blah 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 and that kind of shines a different light but as a piece of design 33 is beautiful it's a pretty little car it's the interior um, is the interior is magnificent amazing yeah it is a Julia airbag it's really a steering wheel and airbag without the buttons on it i kind of laugh because you can see the yeah. parts there it is right it's got julia stocks as well but it's but, it's so it's such like a timeless design though because it's not like so tech heavy i would love to have something top, like that right? there's a uconnect five screen that actually drops down from the dash but mr imperato was very explicit in that meeting he goes i don't want screens all over the place not for a driver's car. And especially when we also reviewed the next gen cars at that meeting, you know, Julia Stelvio and I, and we saw the proposals and, you know, he, he said, keep the screen small. And, and I agreed with him. It really was remarkable. I mean, it was remarkable that, that we were able to keep the screen small. We had yeah. a little help actually from touring to build these cars. They're not actually built in the same plant as, as the MC20 in Modena, uh, which is mm -hmm. where Force 
itself. They're built, I think they're co-built with Touring Superleggera to handle them. Because it is such a small production run, it's a little crazy to tool up a full-on industrialized plan for this from a cost perspective. But it's such a special, such a beautiful car that it is, it is really remarkable. I guess I ask my, I scratch my head, like, who wants this thing in electric is my question. I don't know if you have any insight into it, but did they actually make an even amount? I have no idea. You know, I have no idea what they've produced so far. I think they intend to deliver the gas cars first. Mm -hmm. uh, And then the electric cars, I think, were intended to be delivered in 25, I think was the original press release. But, you know, the intention, at least at the time, was to build 50-50, you know, gas electric, with the deciding last car decided by Mr. Tavares. Which, you know, obviously given our dare, you know, at the time, the dare 2030, the hour, I'm not, I do not speak on behalf of Stellantis. At the time, the dare 2030 objectives of the lower emissions and, and zero and BEV uh, launching probably would be a BEV of some kind. But, you know, this thing is evocative with, an, uh, with a gas soundtrack. I find it interesting. I don't know how you replicate that experience. And this goes for a lot of electric sports cars, right? How do you replicate that experience? I don't quite understand the point of electric sports cars yet. And I may sound like a dinosaur, but you buy a sports car because it's emotional. Purely emotional purchase, right? Yeah. I don't know anyone who buys a sports car for logic. And emotion, sound is part of that. I was at Grid Life in August at, 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 at Lime Rock Park, and they had a... I was there, too. I, I bet we, again, we were at the same event and missed each other. <laughs> Great job. Yeah, but, but, you know, they had that series, they had Tesla Model 3 Challenge, right? And then they had the regular gas-powered series. The Tesla Model 3, I tried watching it. I tried watching the first season. It was the most boring thing I've ever watched in my life. It's the most boring. I mean, it was just dull as dishwater. And it's nothing personal, but like racing and just evocative things like, you know, driving your sports car on the twisty roads of Vermont or in the canyons in Malibu. I want to hear that noise. I want to be a part of the of the moment. Right. And instead I hear is, you know, it's kind of it's hard for me to to justify that, not just in 33, but in any any sports car. Yeah, it's engaging of an experience to watch or experience yourself. I'm just not sure I understand who that's for besides the tech savvy person, right? And that, mm-hmm. and I, I just, I'm convinced that this person is dominating, this, this persona is dominating mm-hmm. the conversation we're having about the future. Yeah. And we're not, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to construe that I'm anti-EV. I'm not because there are very good EVs out there, but I'm, I'm more, I'm pro-pragmatism. I'm a very pragmatic guy and I'm practical solutions to problems. This is not practical. But yeah, but 33, to finish my point, 33, beautiful car. It is It is everything that Alfa Romeo stands for. It is beauty. Mm-hmm. It is tradition. It is a refreshing breath of sensuality in a time of angular, aggressive design. It is soft in its corners, I would say. And it's, it's like the opposite of the Cybertruck. It is the opposite of the Cybertruck. the opposite of a lot of cars. It's it's the lack of screens that, you know, that really reiterate the purpose is to experience, not to just exist in the wheel of a car. And it is for those who love it, right? And Amira is the same way. I mean, Amira has relatively small screens, even though it's basically a... a it's like my up. second choice. Uh... Fabulous car if they can deliver them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I've seen one Amira on the road. Are they I out? Well. I think it's a press car. So I don't think it's probably a press car. There's still like, I, I was looking, they're still up for pre-order on the website and it still says, I think delivering summer 2023. So definitely a press uh, owner then. Cause it was in the canyons, yeah. in the LA canyons. What a far cry. The Amira from the Electra that we also saw right next to it at the. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Electra, you know, just changing 
quick gears. I don't mean to steer the conversation that way, but you know, Electra and Emil, that's the other one too, right? I know Lotus has to change, but it's just not Lotus. It's it's not Lotus. And it's actually really a Polestar 3 underneath. Yeah. It's, it's old Geely, right? If you ever want to have a great chat with someone about the weird, wonderful world of Geely, you can talk with Kevin Williams, who's a friend and a wonderfully Mr. Vinfast expose himself. Kevin is the man in terms of he the stuff I just I was in disbelief some of the stuff he told me about Vinfast. Anyway, the Amira, I'm sorry, the Electra. It's very impressive technically, and the interior is apparently very well finished. I got to see one at the Goodwood Festival of Speed in July, mm-hmm. and it is, it's fine. It's just not Lotus. It's so shocking to the system as far as what the Lotus brand is. They're trying to redefine Lotus, but they're not doing any of the legwork to walk the public and walk the customer from old Lotus to new Lotus. Yeah, I, so I, to- I don't get who it's for is... We were talking yeah, about this last week, it. but EV Cayenne, EV Macan, EV perform customer. Right? It they doesn't see- have like the same cultural cachet as Porsche or Lamborghini with the Urus. Uh, they they both are like well known brands with a mainstream audience. That's my point, and they're trying to build. They're trying to just launch this thing into the market, which is what all these EV startups are trying to do with no brand building, There's mm-hmm. no brand story, right? What is this reason for being? Why is New Lotus something to be excited about? Ivaya, to me, was a wasted opportunity, right? The 2000 horsepower electric car. I think people have seen it like once. It it only vaguely looks like the Amira in front, which is a gas car. It doesn't make any sense. There's no synergy. It doesn't look like the Electra because it doesn't have the one light bar. They're just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks at this point. I don't yeah. get it. But Lotus, you know, everybody's like, this is not what Colin Chapman would have done. Blah, 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 you know, brish. Um, yeah, I don't mean to tell you this, but Colin Chapman almost killed every driver he put in a race car. <laughs> so, um, you know, he made the parts. So, and famously, Jim Clark tried to beat the shit out of him because he almost killed him in a, in a crash. And eventually did kill him, but, you know, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, it was worth it to add lightness. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it does go against the ethos of driver connection. Like, I get the, the point. They need the money from the Chinese, but it is not in the ethos of the brand. And then I think ultimately, right, why not reinvest it in England? To be English is to be Lotus. To be Lotus is to be English, I should say. So to build the cars in China is a little strange. That's the hard um, thing, yeah. isn't it? It's like, it just seems like Lotus is in a position where they have to sell out for the future or they die. Like, I don't think they could... So what does future Lotus look like then if this is what they're selling? I don't... You know, to me, all EVs are fast. What are they trying to salvage? Yeah. All EVs are fast. All EVs have wacky styling and goofball screens and bleep loop this and, you know, ambient lighting that and Alcantara this and whatever the fuck. And so the question becomes, um, you know, and I said this for a long time with my colleagues at Stellantis, differentiation is going to be the single hardest thing that the the industry is going to have to come to terms with. They're already having a hard time with it, right? I mean, some cars will actually, you know, obviously there will be differences between Ram and GM and Chevrolet, you know, Chevrolet and Ford and the way they do trucks. Mm -hmm. But when all these performance luxury EVs are fast, like, you know, you can't lose. There will be no bad cars in the sense of objectively bad, right? No Chevy Aveos. But there will be a question of, do all these brands need to exist? Do all these nameplates need to exist? You know, when, Mm -hmm. when Panamera gets reborn, I don't think there's a reason for it to exist. I would kill off Panamera in its next generation and make Taycan bigger. And that's it. And that's the end of that. 
you know, why Tycon already has equity. They built equity very quickly mm-hmm. in that brand, right? They've sold 30, 40,000 of the things, right? They obviously, there is a, it has proven its chops, right? Panamera yeah. doesn't sell very well. They sold like 7,000 of them last year or something, 8,000. So it asks the question of, you know, all these nameplates, there will be a huge, uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but the huge nameplate rationalization, the whole kind of killing Weeding, you know, uh, 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 thinning of the herd. The great right? purge. The great purge. <laughs> and I think we have just not come to terms with it yet. A lot of sentimentality, right? Yeah. Um, but I think, like, for example, Audi, by killing off R8 and TT, there is a missed opportunity here that they could have had something in between the two as an electric halo, right? Mm-hmm. RS, on to me, is not that. It is a sedan. I don't aspire to buy a sedan yeah. in my life, unless it is a Rolls Royce. That's the other thing. Spectre. I got to see Spectre in person at Goodwood. And I don't know if you guys have spent any time in one or spent around one or I popped wish. in one. I haven't seen yeah. one. It is, it is enormous. And not in a way that I like. It's garish. And it's not, and the sills are super high and the roof is super low and it's on 23 inch wheels. It's big and the, and the taillights are silver, Alteza taillights and tiny and... And it's just not rolls, and it's just like it makes sense in Rolls's case to to do to do electric, right? Because even mm-hmm. Henry Roll himself wanted that. Um, but for example, you know, BMW I think is going to have a real hard time coming to terms when they're forced to be all Bev. And I also think that we really need to be exploring things other than Bev. Bev is the cheap answer. That's why. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what what would your I, I I know that like we spoke before, and we're we're pretty aligned on the environmental impact being important. I mean, we both believe in climate change, but also, like you said before, the, the powertrain loses some of its character. So like, what is the ideal future in in, in your opinion? Um, you know, it, it's definitely not putting all our eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't believe in all this hubbub, but the grid can't support it. The grid, the grid. Yeah. All these people are yelling about the grid. The grid will get upgraded. There are interesting things happening right now. Actually, there was an article I read. It was either from BMW or in Automotive News or somewhere. They're taking battery packs out of X3P heads and using them as generators, Mm -hmm. uh, batteries for schools and stuff to take load off the grid. And that, to me, admits that there's a problem with the grid. But in the short term, it allows us to build out the grid while not disconnecting the grid. But you can unload some of that grid onto a backup pack, right? Smart solutions like that. But I think, you know, for large commercial vehicles, it will have to be hydrogen at some Mm -hmm. level, right? It is totally, I don't care what the Tesla Semi does. It is totally impractical to have something that big with that many batteries, that heavy, roll down the road. I think one of them already caught fire. Oh, I'm sure. But, you know, uh, with over-the-road trucking and especially, like, cross, you know, long-distance bus routes, right, they do exist. People take the bus still because flying is expensive. These are places where it's hard, you know, the downtime required to charge. You can't DC fast charge a pack that big. You'd be there Mm -hmm. for hours, even on a fast charger. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like a thousand kilowatt charger to get like, you know, so that is not a solution, right, for that kind of over the road trucking, because especially with like Amazon Prime semis and stuff, that time is money. That is every minute that that truck is not rolling, it is a dollar not being earned for Amazon. I assure you. Mm-hmm. Right? So well, at least it would get bathroom breaks. <laughs> well, I think, I think plug in hybrids or some kind of hybridization of those platforms, that is definitely a solution, right? Because like in inner cities, not having to listen to that thing drive along mm-hmm. would be great. Certainly yeah. in Manhattan, 
like to watch buses come into Port Authority on silent and then go back mm-hmm. on the highway. That's great. Fine. That to me, I think, is a possibility there. For cars, I think hydrogen problem for cars is that they got to focus on the big picture stuff first. But even Toyota has admitted it's a stupid fallacy. It's yeah. What about like what Porsche is doing with e fuels? Do you think the well, price the could ever the, come down on something like that? The issue is the cost. Yeah. Um, Synthetic fuel is very expensive. But yeah. long term, I think it is a solution. You know, I, I hope we're not stupid enough to start closing gas stations left and right in like 10, 20 years. We'll leave a few gas stations. I think that our change, whether we like it or not, it's going to be here a lot longer than we think. There's just too many cars on the average age of cars on the road is 12 years right now. So anything you think is a full transition, push it out by 15 years. Cars are built better than they've ever been built. But the other problem I have is that the other side of all these first gen BEVs, right, is that like with first-gen digital cameras and laptops and stuff, we're creating a lot of e-waste. Mm-hmm. Stuff that we throw in junkyards and don't think about. The circular economy that all these automakers talk about, BMW talked about it, Stellantis, the battery recycling plants, none of this stuff is up and running yet. It's going to be a few years. And even when yeah. it is, are they going to buy back every pack? Yeah, that's more of a concern than the power grid, I think, is yeah. the the infrastructure the around uh, yeah, recycling the batteries, e-waste. Yes, cradle, cradle to grave, yes. A BEV is producing a lot less CO2. Cradle mm-hmm. to grave, whole life cycle. I'm not talking about the manufacturing only. It does create more CO2 in the initial manufacturer. But mm-hmm. I also find that having this discussion with a few friends, and this is an issue I'll bring up later, is the morality of solving the climate crisis with consumerism. There's a whole mm-hmm. other story. We are trying to buy our way out of this. Yeah. Right? And the best thing you can do is just drive an old car, maintain it, and keep it from being smoky and polluting. And I don't yep. mean a car that's got no catalytic converters that runs on a carburetor from the 70s, 90s, 2000s stuff that's fuel injected and reasonably clean. It is the smallest carbon footprint. I'll give you an example. I've had my I've had my 328 for 12 years, right? And it's a manual. And mm-hmm. in that time, I could have leased four Teslas different Teslas, right? And anybody would, right? They would want a new car. They don't keep buying, you know what I mean? Yeah. So instead of requesting the materials to build four different vehicles and the energy and the transportation costs and the fuel costs to get that car here and all the paperwork and the money, I have kept the same car. Now, I'm not saying that everybody is that way. I'm not telling everybody, you must only keep an old box and this is what you must drive, but Mm -hmm. we must change our habits around consumerism. Car yeah, it doesn't need to be around for three years. Maybe leases go to five years. There is a better way of recycling this stuff. And this stuff needs to be online now. And the federal government is, even though I am left of center, admittedly, is doing this in the stupidest way possible. I think the Inflation Reduction Act was one of the stupidest pieces of legislation passed because it, it has essentially ostracized the middle class from buying hybrids and PHEVs, which in the here and now is what we need. If we're trying to get people off of fuel, mm-hmm. do it in any way you can. Right. Yeah, having so, more hybrids on the road, which is an easier sell, is going to reduce the CO2 quicker than getting a small number of, of BEVs out there. If you get 10 people and, and, they, and they drive PHEVs, right? And let's say mm-hmm. the average PHEV reduces your gas consumption by 50% on a daily commute. That means net five people day, uh, a weekly are using no gas versus one person who bought a BEV. Definitely. And especially as uh, the electric range gets longer and longer for the PHEVs on the daily. I mean, like what the average person drives 30 miles a day or something like that. Yeah. And, and on yeah. Top of that, you're not fighting for battery resources. You're not fighting 
the geopolitical ramifications of battery materials are tough. China owns the market. Everybody's like, we're so behind China. I said, yes, China has a captive market of 1.3 mm -hmm. billion people. China owns the world on material production for batteries. Mm -hmm. So they're able to get it to their suppliers. The government helps sponsor local automakers, pretty much. They'll write them blank checks, as far as I know. They're, getting, they're obviously getting support from the Chinese government. So yeah, they have the perfect storm of that. We don't take it seriously enough. And we also, you know, in this country, if we were to have the government sponsor automakers to produce BEVs, it would be called communism by a lot of people, mm, you know, yeah. which is nonsense. It's getting us to where we need to be technologically. But, you know, China has taken it seriously, right? But they also have an incredible smog and pollution problem that we have somewhat got under control in the Clean Air Act. We also had the Clean Air Act 50 years ago. Anyway. I digress. Uh, what are your thoughts on, as someone who recently departed Stellantis, the the Ram Charger? Have you have you uh, you have any thoughts on that? I'm so glad, you know Tim Kinesius is now head of Ram, and Tim is a genius when it comes to names. He is so good mm -hmm. with naming. Mm -hmm. All the demons, the Hellcats, a lot of that toe and go on Durango, which I thought was hilarious and great. <laughs> you know, that's all Tim. Tim is great with 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 that kind of quick draw thinking, right? Ram Charger. A lot of people have asked, why the Panastar? That's such a mm -hmm. big general. I said, yeah, because it's cheap. It's available. We know the packaging. We know the engine. It's a yeah. cop car engine, so it can idle for a really long time. And by the way, it's light. It's aluminum. And why would I put a turbo four in there? When I put a turbo four in there, I got to put a turbocharger. I got to put a charge pipe. I got to put an intercooler. I got to put mm -hmm. the cooling lines for all that crap. I got to put an oil line from the turbo. I got to do all this extra plumbing and weight that yeah. I don't need, considering it's not connected to a transmission. Yeah, I think it's so, pretty interesting. It's like one of the more interesting vehicles that was announced this year. Game, but comes back to complexity. That front subframe is probably the same as a base V6 RAM. So from a manufacturing perspective, it's cheaper. And on top of that, and not in a bad way, it's just smart manufacturing. Yeah. But most of the time, you're not using... You're not going to be using gas, right? Because it's got 150 miles of range. Just yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> and There's nothing else like that, right? No, not in the consumer market. Knowing us, that's probably a conservative rating. It'll probably be even better than that. And the reality is, you only need the gas engine when towing. And the re the other reality is, people have forgotten about today. We yeah. have today through the end of the decade to get through first, right? Yeah. We keep building charging stations that aren't prepared for towing. I heard some statistic when I was at FCA, it was like 40 or something percent of Ram owners tow. It was like pretty high. You know, so if that's the case, where do I put my trailer when I pull into my, you know, my whatever charger? Yeah. Right? My dad recently was in the market for plug-in hybrids. He ended up getting a Grand Cherokee 4xe, but it was one of the few, it was, it might have been the only option that was under like 50, maybe 60K that would tow over 5,500, 6,000 pounds, something like that. There were no other plug-in hybrid options that he had in that well, in that price range. Ram Charger is not a PF. Ram Charger is an E-Rev, which is an extended... Right, range. right. Yeah, I just meant like in, in terms of in terms of alternative powertrains to EVs or to BEVs and, and gas vehicles, there's really not a whole lot to choose from if you're we're towing a lot. You know, we're talking about something with diesel levels of range. It's got just shy of seven hundred miles of range. Yeah. And that's really fascinating. And even when it's in charging mode, the thing's not charging at red line. Yeah. It's charging at 
2,500 to 3,000 RPM, maybe. So it's very understressed mechanically, and it's a mm -hmm. cool, it's just a great idea for at least now through the end of the decade. It's, it's again, the, like Tonale is a great today answer, right? Yeah. Not everything will be ready for a decade from now. We need to yeah. get through the present first and then get to the future, and we will. But this is, you know, and for those who think that this is a step backwards, well, guess what? We have Ram Rev ready for you. Right. Well, not we, but Stellantis has Ram Rev ready for you. Now, Q3 of next year, you'll be able to get a Ram Rev. And it's a true, as far as I can tell, a true 500 mile EV. That's awesome. Which, which is something that Elon could not deliver on and has to put a booster pack in his bed. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I mean, you got to be kidding me with that. That is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Wasn't it so, that they originally promised 500 miles, but now it's, yes, only, and it's still only go 470. With max 470 pack. with the booster pack and you lose half your bed to the booster pack and you lose the other half of the bed it sits in the bed oh that's great it sits <laughs> in the bed very practical you know, you know those toolboxes that sit at the front of the bed yeah mm -hmm. that's basically how it sits where's my ikea furniture supposed to go i don't know but it gets better because you can't store the spare under the bed you have to store it where's in. my cyber atv supposed to go what's it called oh my god <laughs> I don't know. Is that happening? It's laying next to one of the cyber trucks in one of the showers. It's just a stupid truck. <laughs> just a dumbass truck. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, pedestrian decapitation. That seems to be a... Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say stupid product. Engineering-wise, it's very impressive. The wire and the structural exoskeleton and all these other things, right? But the, the broken promises and then the, 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 the fact that it's just competitive. It is not like in the stats that matter to people who buy these big things. I don't need it to do 2.6 seconds. Yeah. But if it looks like that, the damn thing better be class leading. And it is not. It's mm -hmm. only a thousand times more than a Silverado or an F-150 Lightning, which in the grand scheme of things is a wash. It's 3,000 pounds less than a Ram Rev. And I just, I don't know. Whatever. I could write a book on why that thing is annoying to me. If we can pivot back to Alfa sure. Romeo and Fiat for a second. I do want to mm -hmm. ask this. You would say that Alfa Romeo definitely had a bit of a hard time edging itself back into the U.S. market. Is that fair to say? Well, which when at which point? When we introduced the sports car as our only car? The... <laughs> forgot about the 4C. But now that you remind me of that, yeah, I, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, 4C is something interesting. I, I, I had borrowed one twice from work, and I was like, wow, I got to give this back early. <laughs> It was so rough. Uh, a cool car to drive, but boy, is it it beats you up in terms of there's no insulation in the car whatsoever, and it's it's really it's 2,400 pounds, and that's that's really remarkable to, to drive something like that. But Alpha's entry to the United States was complicated, I think, by the fact that there was a hard time. I don't know how to put this delicately. The talent that was put in place at the time of the brand's launch was not used to luxury brands. And so if you want to be a luxury brand, you have to think like one. And you can't mm -hmm. just have people whose mainstream skill set applies here and there, you know, whatever. You have to get people, you know, you go and you need to poach talent from the places that have done this well. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, like if Hyundai you're Apple, you're not good. Like Hyundai, I was just thinking that, yeah. They got Beerman, right? They weren't screwing around. Yeah. yeah. And, and you'll notice that Ionic 5N, great car to drive from the reviews. Uh, every Genesis product, really great to drive. All the other end products, fantastic. You can always tell when Beerman hasn't touched a product. I think 
the biggest challenge was also the network. It was never as big as it needed to be. The biggest challenge was also that the year after Alpha really jumped back in, which was 17 with Julia um, and 18 with Stelvio, Mr. Marchione died in 18. And Sergio was the brand champion for Alpha Romeo. He was the guy who brought it back. He was the one who brought the skunks team, skunk team together, skunks team together, the black ops, basically, to, to build Giorgio and write these blank checks, basically, to Alpha to, mm-hmm. to relaunch, right? And get Philippe Creef, who was the 458 Italia chassis guy and all the other Ferrari guys in to build these cars. And then he died suddenly, unfortunately. And without that vision, you know, we had competent people like Manly and others, but they didn't understand Alpha. Manly came from Jeep. And so, again, it comes from like, he, you know, we were such a small volume player and we were just trying to get off the ground and without our champion there, Alpha's biggest challenge was losing our advocate, our mm. brand advocate, which was that. And in a way, you know, getting Imperato back, we got some room to breathe uh, with Imperato. And but uh, but the pressure's been on, you know, when I left, right? The pressure was on. Everything had to be profitable. Everything, mm-hmm. the ten-year plan for all of the brands. And I don't know what the future looks like now, but. You know, I just hope that it doesn't become a Roger Smith GM situation where everything is bad. You know, we have GM 10 cars everywhere and everything's badge engineered. You know, um, that would be a real a real shame and a disservice to Alpha and a disservice to the other brands. Because some brands like like, you know, like does a Durango need to handle like a Stelvio? I don't know. That was going to be my yeah. question was, like, oh, what was yeah. your outlook for uh Alpha and Fiat, can they stick it out for another 20 more years? Is Fiat going to have to go away? Because I know I don't know. Started. You know, I mean, we know that 500E is coming. That was my last project there. And so we'll see. We'll see. You know, uh, my last project there was, was 500E. Long story short, you know, it's hard to uh, it's hard to say what the future looks like because I don't, you know, I, I don't know what their plan is, right? That's stuff that we don't typically comment on. Uh, certainly since I left the company, right, there's obviously NDAs and stuff in place. But we know 500E is coming. I hope it does well for them. I think the pricing is a little nuts. No, I think it's 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 kind of confusing because uh, at least in the U.S. market, because the 500 was like exited the market, and now they just have the crossover, right? Yeah, well, 500X is dying as the end of this year, I believe it's out of out of market. Okay. I think that's not a big loss. I don't think that was ever really that popular. No, um, it was never really a true countryman rival. I think it was supposed to, you know, I felt like it was a countryman in a five pound, no, ten pounds of countryman in a five pound bag. So maybe not my taste, but did they anyway, discontinue the city car because it wasn't selling though? And like, uh, yeah, and Americans, don't, Americans don't buy small cars. We know this, right? Then why the 500E? Isn't it also a small city car or? I like... think attitudes have changed certainly in urban centers now towards electrification. Okay. Right? The perfect car. If you're in LA, it's the perfect car. If you're in New York or DC mm-hmm. uh, or even Miami to pop around town and, and you don't need to do it in a giant SUV. You can do it. And this thing has, the ride quality that is so creamy. I get to drive a Eurospec one earlier this year, and it is so creamy right. in terms of the ride quality and comfortable. I am shocked at how well, how comfortable the car is and quiet. It gives you the sensation of not feeling like you're in a phone booth and not feeling like you've bought something that may be made by Fisher-Price. So, but at any rate, I hate to I hate to end a little bit early, but I have a, a hard commitment at three. Totally so. fine. Thanks a bunch for joining us today, and we'll have to have you on again, finish up this conversation. 
Have a lovely show.